This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 1. The Bible tells us here, beginning in verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Then in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'd like for you to note the phrase we find in verse number three, grace be unto you. I want to speak to you on the subject, Uh, this evening of grace unto you, grace unto you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your abundant grace and your long-suffering toward us. Thank you that you are the God of all grace. Thank you for the price that your dear son paid so that we might be recipients of your grace. And I pray that as we look together in this passage that you would speak to us, encourage our hearts through the ministry of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of us who are students of the Bible have uh, obtained a certain familiarity with the Corinthian church. Uh, from Paul's writings, if you have read through the book of First Corinthians, you, you know that the Corinthian church was a gifted church. Uh, but although they were a gifted church, they were a carnal church and an uncharitable church, an unloving church, uh, full of rivalry and uh, jealousy and envy and divided into factions In addition to all of that, they were in error in matters of doctrine. And so having learned of these difficulties, the Apostle Paul addresses 
this church. And uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this epistle and sends it uh, to the church at Corinth. We have a record of the beginning and the ministry, uh, the beginning of the church at Corinth and the ministry of Paul there in Acts chapter number 18. As Paul went into that city and preached the gospel and continued there for a long time, a year and six months, 18 months he was there ministering to the people at Corinth, working to help them get a foundation in their faith and to thrive as believers in the midst of a wicked, wicked city. And that is exactly what Corinth was a city of some 600,000 residents. Uh, Corinth is located on the eastern side of the islands of Greece, and it was situated on a narrow strip of land called an isthmus. And on either side of the strip, there were two ports, two seaports. And sailors and ship, shipmen would, would travel through those ports. And oftentimes, someone who was going... Uh, through that area would actually unload the cargo on their ship and lift their ship up onto the ground. And they had a, a system that they would employ to roll that ship along that narrow strip until they got to the other side. It was about 10 miles. If you look at a map today, you're going to find there's a canal there uh, that allows the ships to pass through that area. But imagine the great effort they went to to roll their ship and transport their ship on dry ground uh, that 10-mile length. It was obviously a difficult task, but what would have been more difficult for many of them would have been to uh, sail the 250 miles that would have required them to sail to get around the island to the other side. And it was a difficult difficult voyage to do so. And so this city was a city of commerce with ports, as I mentioned, on either side, people coming and going in both directions. About 1,900 feet above the sea was the temple of Aphrodite. It was a pagan temple. There was a great deal of immorality and idolatry in Corinth. John Phillips gives us a little background concerning the city. He writes, the temple of Aphrodite with its famous cult statue and its thousand consecrated prostitutes drew thousands of people to Corinth and did a thriving business. Corinth was notorious around the world for its immorality and drunkenness. It was a Greek Sodom. Paul's graphic description of paganism that we find recorded in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 32, was dictated from this city. So we imagine the Apostle Paul as he's writing his letter concerning uh, the turning away of the Gentiles from the truth of God's word and their degradation as God gave them up to uncleanness and God gave them up to vile affections. And finally, he said God gave them up or God gave them over rather to a reprobate mind. He is living in the city of Corinth and ministering as he is writing those words. John Phillips gives us 
I think, an interesting picture of life inside the city. He said it was famous, too, for its bronze foundries. The Corinthian smiths' jealousy guarded a secret formula of mixing copper, gold, and silver. Indeed, he writes, Corinthian bronze was world famous. The smelting ovens deep in caverns dug out of the rocks were like a scene from Dante's Inferno. The wretched slaves who stoked the ovens never saw the light of day. They existed as subterranean human moles from childhood. The heat they had to endure was unbearable, and the fumes they breathed poisonous. Their exposed flesh was pitted and scarred from the constant shower of metallic sparks to which they were exposed. Life was short and cheap, and those who died were simply thrown into the furnace. Anyone who became blind or incapacitated was simply thrown aside to starve to death or grovel on the garbage heaps. Many a wretched mother watched a loved child so discarded by callous masters who were only interested in making a profit. He goes on to say that Christianity is in no peril from the Corinths and Vanity Fairs, which is a reference to Pilgrim's Progress. The Corinths and Vanity Fairs of this world. However, just so long as it stays true to its call, speaking of Christianity, Christians are safe even in Corinth, so long as they recall that their home is in heaven and that they have become citizens of another world. Christianity was designed to enable us to make our way through this world, on our way to the world to come. And then he writes this, it's not the water outside a ship that sinks it. A ship is designed for deep waters. It's the water that gets in that imperils the ship. That's what imperiled the Christians at Corinth. The world had come into the church. What Paul had to say about that is the subject matter of his Corinthian letters. The world had come into the church. And so the apostle Paul, having received that news, having been inspired by the Spirit of God, records this epistle. But I want you to note how he begins this epistle in these opening verses. He deals with the subject of God's grace. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God? God's grace. God's grace is bestowed upon us. It is his unmerited favor upon us. And into this dark, wicked city, came an abundant supply of the grace of God. Just as that abundant supply flows today in this city and in the cities across our nation. When you think of Corinth, you might think of uh, the, the more well-known cities of our nation, New York City or, or perhaps Los Angeles and Hollywood or, or San Francisco or Las Vegas, places that are known places that are prosperous, and places that are notorious for certain behaviors. The influence of those cities is spread across our country. 
You see, Corinth was no easy place to start a church. And there certainly was not the Judeo-Christian ethic that had been a guiding principle in the foundation of that society. And that gives me great hope today. It ought to give you great hope that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And with the power of God and the word of God, God's church can move forward. And as Jesus said, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we'll note some things about his grace this evening. And I hope you'll write them down. Number one, we see the glory of his grace. The glory of his grace. Notice, if you would please, in verse number one, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now, we note here who the apostle Paul was. Remember, his name at one time was Saul. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was persecuting Christians, a zealous man, a man who was learned in the law, a man who was... Uh, the uh, also a free man and influenced by the cultures of the world and aware of those cultures, knowledgeable of those cultures. But he was a sinner. And while he was on the road to Damascus, the grace of God appeared to him and saved him from his sin. And God sent him on a mission across the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we pause and read these words, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Here we see an amazing picture of the grace of God. The apostle Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he said this, of whom I am chief. And then he said that God had chosen him and saved him to use him to be a pattern for all who would believe. What is it a pattern of? It is a pattern of the grace of God. Here we see the glory of his grace. If he could save a man like Paul, then he would take that man and fit him for his use and send him to a wicked city like Corinth and there use him to bring the message of the gospel to many to see them saved out of their sin and their bondage and to see a church established there in that place, the glory of God's grace. Think of what he's done in your life, how he's changed you. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The glory of God's grace. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, who was Sosthenes, he was the man who was the leader of the synagogue, and he came to faith in Christ. God changed his life, and he helped Paul and traveled with Paul. In verse number two, the Bible says, under the church of God, which is at Corinth. What a place for God to establish his church in one of the strongholds of Satan, a city like Corinth. And he says, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he's saying, I'm speaking to those of you who are called to be saints in Corinth, 
but not only unto you who are called to be saints in Corinth, but in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you, and I want you to know that you are the recipients of the glory of God's grace. What a blessing. The church of Corinth was that mighty work of God's grace, a testimony of the glory of it, as is all of the church. Now, we note a couple of things here as we think about his grace. When he is speaking of his, of his grace to them, he says to them in verse number two, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Here we see their position in Christ, their position. And what we're going to find out as we travel through this book together is that their practice was inconsistent with their position. By the way, isn't that the dilemma of all of us who are gathered here tonight? Our practice is not consistent with our position. But the grace of God does not depend upon our practice. It does not depend upon our performance. It is dependent upon the performance of the Lord Jesus. Uh, this word, sanctified, it means set apart one or holy one. If you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior, you have a new position. You are set apart. You are or have been made in Christ by the nature of your relationship with him and the work of God in your soul, the 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 indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the divine nature that has been imparted to you, you have been made holy in the sight of God. You are therefore sanctified. Notice what he says, called to be saints. When we think of saints, we think of those whose life has demonstrated a pattern of holiness, those who have done unusual works. And, of course, there are pagan churches who uh, identify individuals as saints. But they are not made saints because of what they did or what they do. They are made saints because of what Christ did for them. And those of us who know the Lord have been designated as saints, set apart, every true believer in Jesus Christ, whether we have been faithful to God or unfaithful to God, whether we have been well-known or unknown, we have been set apart under Christ, a holy person, a saint. That's their position in Christ. But we know from reading the rest of the book that was not their practice, was it? Their practice uh, could be characterized in many ways. But the word carnal, of course, comes to mind and is used. As we mentioned earlier, John Phillips quoted, the water got inside the boat. And when we allow the world and the behavior of the world and the practices of the world and the thinking of the world to get inside the ship, then it begins to corrupt our hearts and minds, and we 
fail to practice a life that is consistent with our position. And this is where Satan loves to get in. Because all of us struggle in this area. Some of us struggle in ways that people do not see, only we know and only God knows. Others struggle in ways that are very visible or become visible over time. But we all deal with our flesh. We all deal with the spirit of this world. We all deal with the temptation to sin. And there are many, many days when we do not live up to the practice of our position. Along then comes the adversary of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren, the one who reminds us of our sin and our iniquity, the one who seeks to beat us down and discourage us. And of course, we know that the Apostle Paul in the remainder of this epistle is going to speak in strong terms concerning the wrong, wicked practices of this church. But he begins by giving them their position in Christ to reinforce the truth that they are the redeemed of God, that they are sanctified, and to combat the lies of the devil. Oftentimes, the devil will convince Christian people they're not good enough. They've blown it. God's angry at them. He's mad at them, trying to punish them. Let me just tell you, the punishment for our sin was meted out on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ took your punishment. You and I could not bear one ounce of it. It would cost us an eternity in hell to suffer the punishment of our sin. God chastens his children. He disciplines them, but he does not punish us for our sin. We do not pay for our sin. Thanks be unto God. We are the accepted of God. We are his children. He loves us, and he is speaking to us concerning his grace and Paul begins there because grace becomes the primary motivating factor in our lives, that once we understand our position in Christ, that will serve to move us into the proper practice for Christ. Go with me to Titus chapter 2, verse number 11. Paul, in his letter to Titus, speaks of the grace of God here in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. He said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, you see, here we find this, the grace of God is a teacher. The grace of God that says, you can do nothing to earn my favor. The grace of God that says, once you have obtained my favor, your behavior does not keep you in my favor. Or does it bring you outside of my favor? It doesn't depend on you. It depends on the atoning work of my son. 
You see, once we acknowledge that, then we're taught something. What does the grace of God teach us? Notice it in verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. That means temperately and in control, wisely and moderately. Righteously, that means we should seek to do what God has told us to do in his word, to seek a righteous life. And godly, a life that represents him and takes on his characteristic and nature in our love, in our attitude, in this present world. You see, it is the grace of God that teaches us to live consistently, to practice what God has given us to practice in his word. When we understand his grace, we are filled with a heart of gratitude and a heart of love and a heart of devotion, and God by his spirit works to transform us so that we desire to please God. Those who love us most are those that we seek to please the most. And so we see the glory of God's grace. Our standing, our position does not depend upon us. It depends upon Christ. And once we recognize this, however, we will seek to bring our practice in line with our position. Oftentimes we, we, we listen to the condemning voice of Satan. And by the way, we even condemn ourselves with our own voice, right? I don't understand why God loves me. I don't understand why God would forgive me. I'm not worthy. And then from time to time, we hear the condemning voice of others. We try to establish a system uh, that will somehow bring us into favor with God, a system of behavior, and we should behave ourselves. That is exactly why Paul is writing this epistle to correct wrong behavior. But the primary motive of that must be the grace of God, the glory of God's grace. Then we see, secondly, the, the greeting of grace. The greeting of grace, notice it in verse 3, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greeks use this term as a greeting, grace, charis is the word. And the Jews would greet one another with the word shalom or peace. And what we find is that the Lord Jesus Christ extends to us grace and peace into a world that is an that is at enmity against him came the savior the son of god and what is his greeting to this world this world that hates him this world that that rages against him why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing the kings of the, the earth, they set themselves and, and they say, let us break his bands asunder. Let us cast his cords. No restraint. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want this old uh, archaic system of the Bible to be imposed upon us. We don't want any responsibility. We don't want any accountability in our lives. We want to be the master of our own fate. And they rage against God and God greets them not with a sword, but with love. 
with a sweet word. Grace be unto you and peace. Grace only comes from God and peace only comes from God. It is the peace that passes all understanding. What a greeting God has brought into this world. What a greeting he has met us with. We see the glory of grace. We see the greeting of grace. And then we see, thirdly, the gifts of grace. The gifts of grace. We read it in verse number 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you. Remember now, we cannot earn the grace of God. It is extended to us. It is given to us. It is a gift. That in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye, be, that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said a moment ago, grace is a gift. It is unmerited favor. It depends solely upon the work of Christ, and it is totally exclusive from the work of man. And the Bible tells us that we, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, and ye are complete in him. That means he has provided for you all that you need. So I wish I was a better Christian. <laughs> I wish I was a better man. I wish I was a better husband. I wish I was a better father. I wish I was a better Sunday school teacher or Christian worker. I, I wish I was a better mother or a better son or a better daughter, a better neighbor. I wish I could be like so-and-so. Well, let me tell you, you have the same access that so-and-so does to Christ. And everything in him belongs to you, to you. All of his riches, all of his blessings, all of his wisdom, all of his power, all of his love is accessible to you. How do we access it? By his grace. It is a wonderful gift that he's given to us. He tells us here in verse 5 that in everything <laughs> ye are enriched by him. What is it that you have need of? God has an abundant resource, and he's offered it to you in the person of Christ. Notice what he says, in all utterance. That's our speech. And why, why does God employ the tongue so that we can praise him, so that we can speak to others about him? What mode has God chosen to communicate his truth to us, his word? How do we communicate his word? We speak it. We tell other people about him. What has he commissioned us to do? To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You say, well, I've never preached a three-point outline. Well, you don't have to. Aren't you happy about that? You don't even have to alliterate it. No, you don't have to do that at all. But you can tell somebody what Jesus did for you. 
And God has called all of us to do that, not just the apostles that Paul refers to here, but the church, all of the church. We have a message to declare, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can all testify concerning what he has done for us. You say, well, I'm not very eloquent. That's okay. You don't have to be. You don't have to speak with your tongue. But you have to speak from your heart. If you know the Lord, there's something in your heart. You may not be eloquent in delivering it, but you don't have to be. Because the power is not in your eloquence, and Paul will teach us that later. The power is in the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The power is when a genuine person who truly loves Jesus speaks to somebody in sincerity. God can use that, and God can use you in all utterance, in all knowledge, in all knowledge. Do you know that everything God wants us to know about him, he's recorded for us in his word? Some people spend their lives looking for the unsolved mysteries of the Bible. Don't follow that pattern. You know, I really like to hear this guy. I mean, he brings out stuff I've never heard before. <laughs> Why don't you stick with the stuff that you have heard before? Better yet, stick with the stuff that is clear and plain. <laughs> One preacher said, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I really like that. You don't have to go around looking for the unsolved mysteries of the Bible. Just get in the Bible. Find out what God says and make that the important thing in your life. You don't need a niche. You don't need a niche. You need to be consistent with the truth of God's word. In all knowledge, well, how do I become a better husband? Aren't you glad God tells you? How, how, how do I interact with my employer? Aren't you glad God tells you? How do I deal with an uncharitable, unkind brother? Well, God has the answer to that too. Where did I come from? He tells me that. How do I get to heaven? He tells me that. What do I do when I sin? It's in there. He's given me all knowledge. Oh, I don't know everything. You, 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 I'm surprised I didn't get a, a shout of amens on that one. But if I want to, I know everything he wants me to know. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, you see, the apostle Paul said, look, the Lord has been faithful to you. He has performed his work in you so that ye come behind in no gift and you're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a bright future. You're waiting on the coming of the Lord, who shall also confirm you to the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a judgment day coming, and those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ are going to stand not in the record of our own righteousness. Thanks be unto God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But we will stand with the record of the righteousness of the Son of God on the day of judgment, the gifts of grace. And then finally, we see the God of grace. Look at it, if you would, in verse 9. 
God is faithful. Would you say that with me? God is faithful. Let's say it once more all together. Are you ready? God is faithful. Aren't you glad? We sang the song to open the service, He Will Hold Me Fast. Do you know that there are many days when I don't hold fast to him? But there has never been a day, nor will there ever be a day, when he does not hold fast to me. I remember the song when the Savior reached down his hand for me. He had to reach way down for me. I was lost. I was undone. Without God or his Son and the Savior reached down for me. And let me tell you what he did. As the psalmist said, he lifted me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a solid rock, and he has held my hand from that day until this, and he will hold my hand, and I am in his hand, and no man shall ever separate me from the love of Christ, no attack of the devil, no government policy, no sin on my part, as I know the Lord is my Savior, can separate me from the love of Christ. No man is able to pluck me out of his hand. He will hold me fast. He's the God of grace. He is a God who is faithful. I may let him down, and I, I have many times, and I will continue to. And you have let him down and will continue to. But he has never let us down. Jesus said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Any failure that comes will be on our side and not his. He is utterly dependable. His power to secure us is as great as his power to save us. The sooner could the sun cease, John Phillips writes, sooner could the sun cease to shine and the stars be blotted out and the earth cease to rotate than God could be untrue to his own character. His faithfulness to us. And then we see his fellowship with us. It's an amazing thing to think that God the Holy God wants to fellowship with you and I. You know, there are some people in this room who don't want to fellowship together. You say, well, who are they? I don't know. I really don't. But I imagine it's true. I mean, there are people that you like naturally, and there are people that you dislike naturally. Do you think there's any redeemable quality in you that when God looked down from heaven, he said, oh, I really like that guy. Well, I got news for you. There isn't. There's no redeemable quality in you or in me 
God didn't look down from heaven and say, I'll tell you that Scott Hooks, he's a pretty good guy. I really like him. I mean, I wish everybody else I made was like him. No, that never came to his mind, not one time. And though it often comes to our minds concerning the way we think people ought to behave, it never comes to his. It's amazing that he has set his affection upon us, isn't it? I mean, I think about this. You think of the person you loathe the most. And there's more of an affinity in your heart toward that person uh, than, than an, an attraction of personalities, perhaps, than there could have been between you, that person and the Lord or between you and the Lord because the Bible teaches that you were at enmity with God. However, despite that, because of his grace, what did he do? He set his affection on you. He loved you when you were unlovely. While we were yet sinners, all the things that you could possibly detest about someone were true of you and I in the sight of God. Utterly detestable. But yet he loved us. That's amazing love, isn't it? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And despite how detestable we were, do you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to have fellowship with us. He wanted to talk to us. He wanted to commune with us. He wanted to walk with us through life. Think of that. Someone came to see me recently. A young man I haven't seen in a while. I was so happy to sit with him and talk to him. I missed being able to commune with him, to talk to him. It brought me joy to spend some time in fellowship with him. And I thought when I left that meeting, filled with joy, filled with love for that young man, I thought the amazing thing is that God wants to commune with me. And I don't understand why. And I certainly don't understand how. But when I dwell in his presence, it brings joy to him. God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. I said to this young man, I said, you got my phone number. <laughs> I looked at my phone and I went, text me. Talk to me. I'm here. I'm for you. I love you. God is here. He doesn't tell us to do this. He tells us to do this. He tells us to open this. If any man hear my voice, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the amazing thing too, isn't it? Maybe you could say, I came. I extended my hand. 
They can come to me anytime they want to. That's what you and I do. But not Jesus. He comes around the house and he knocks. He says, Scott, are you in there? Why don't you open the door? I'd really like to come in and sup with you and you with me. He wants to fellowship with us. What a blessing. What a glorious truth. He's the God of grace. And he wants to commune with you and I. You know, when we shut him out, when we shut him out, what happens? We need to think about that, don't we? We start thinking wrong, don't we? We start behaving wrong. And then we realize after a while, we're on the wrong road. We've, we've gotten off course somewhere. I remember driving down the interstate, and I was coming to Hickory from Knoxville, and I saw the signs, Morristown. Well, if you've ever been on Interstate 40 between Knoxville and Hickory, you know you don't go through Morristown. What had happened? I'd lost my way. I was on Interstate 81. I was going to Morristown. You see, sometimes we get way past Morristown before we ever determine that we're off course. But the grace of God holds us fast. And if we want to and we desire to, we can get back on course. Grace unto you. That's what Jesus has offered. Amazing grace. The glory of it. Our position is not dependent upon us. It is altogether dependent upon him. Our practice is rarely consistent as it should be. But in spite of that, he still loves us and he still extends his grace to us. And when we get a hold of that, it will encourage us and inspire us. It'll spark a desire in us to practice consistently with our position. That greeting of grace that he offers to us every day, grace and peace. We live in a world that is full of hatred and enmity and strife. But the Lord said, I'll give you my peace. I leave it to you. And we can choose to live in the peace of God. Those gifts of grace that he's given to us, he wants us to employ them and he wants us to use them. Now the Corinthian church got that all wrong, but may God help us to keep it all right. And then the God of grace, the one who is faithful to us and the one who desires to fellowship with us. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used his word to speak to your heart today. 
If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.